0: Good morning, everyone. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you'd like to open up your Bibles, there. Nehemiah chapter 8, a revival of the word, is the title of the message. That's certainly our prayer for our country, for our church, for our personal lives. Lord, would you revive us according to your word? The wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt. Uh, happened back in chapter 6. Chapter 7, of course, was the census that was done of all of the people who had returned from captivity. Over 40,000 of them have made their way back. And now as we get into chapter 8, it's kind of the second phase of the book of Nehemiah. Up until this point, it's been all about rebuilding the wall, and now the focus is going to be rebuilding the people what happened in the material physical world and rebuilding the wall and everything that went along with that as far as the safety and the peace that was going to be afforded to the people now this is a spiritual work that God wants to do in their lives and he wants to do in each one of our lives as well and of course we ask the question well how does that happen how does that take place well chapter 8 verse 1 as pastor Gary got into it last week bring out the book which Did you notice he taught chapter 7, and yet he took one of the best verses from chapter 8? You know, he just kind of slipped right in there, didn't he? Like, I get it, you got a genealogy, that's the way the cookie crumbles. But, you know, tomato, tomato. Um, uh, Bring out the book. Bring out the Bible. Bring out the Word of God. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord, certainly the commandments of God, it could bring a conviction of sin, it exposes our need for a Savior, but the law of the Lord, all of Scripture, the Bible itself, perfect in converting the soul and opening up our eyes that we could see, opening up our ears that we could hear, drawing us into a relationship with Him. The Bible tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. It's as we hear God's Word being preached, as we hear the truth of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a true historical fact. It's a true biblical fact. The Holy Spirit is present here this morning testifying of these things, convincing us. Jesus really did live. And He really did die on the cross for our sin. And He really did rise from the grave, conquering sin, conquering death. We hear this message. And this faith is produced in our hearts and our minds where we can say, yes, Jesus, I believe these things. Would you come into my life? That's how we begin a relationship with the Lord, but it's how we continue as well. We hear God's Word, we believe Him, we're trusting in Him, and we're being changed and transformed. You know, you can look back at every major revival in church history, and there's some common denominators, there's some things that you can see. Oh, there was all this prayer going on, or there was brokenness and humility and repentance of sin. But right up at the top of the list of every major revival is always going to be a returning to the authority of God's Word. It's not necessarily something new coming into the church. It's rediscovering something that should have always been. God, you've given us your word. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's profitable. It's what we need. It's food for our soul. And so would you speak to us, Lord? Would you give us understanding? Now, a word that we're going to see pop up time and time again in this chapter, as a matter of fact, it pops up some seven times in 13 verses, is some version of the word understand or understood Uh, that's going to be repeated over and over again as they're going to spend this time in the bible as they're going to spend this time in the word of god there are things that the lord wants them the lord wants us to understand that we would really get it Uh, that's the a big part of why we gather together here why we're having this time right now as we're studying through the bible Uh, we're not here to hear people's opinion We're not here to hear some cool story. Uh, We definitely don't want to show up and hear a sermon in Latin and have no idea what the guy's talking about. As spiritual as that might sound and an experience that that might be, we don't want to give bits and pieces of Scripture. We don't want to just teach from the Bible where we say a verse and then springboard into whatever conversation we really want to have. No, we want to go chapter by chapter. We want to go verse by verse. We want to understand What is the Bible actually saying? That's a goal when we come to church. And of course, it should be the goal in our personal lives and our devotions as well. Sometimes we go through all of these questions. Well, what version of the Bible should I be reading? What time of day is better? How long should I be spending? And we can ask those questions and we can have opinions on those questions, but maybe the question should be, uh, how long do I have to read it until I understand? How long should I be spending in the Bible to where I'm really getting what's being communicated? It's not something I'm just checking off the list. Lord, I want to meet with you. I want to know what it's saying. I want to hear your voice. How does this apply to my life? We want to have understanding when it comes to the Word of God. And of course, it can be difficult. It can be difficult because our flesh is always going to resist that. Because deep down, our flesh knows that any time we come to God's Word and we're going to spend time with Him, a confrontation is coming. Because our flesh is sinful. And our flesh is weak. And so we think of a million other things that we could be doing with our time, and we say things like, oh, I'm so busy. I've got a lot going on. I just am having a hard time to set aside some time to get into the Word. But the reality is, our flesh knows. I spend time in the Bible, and my sinful flesh is gonna be exposed, and then I have to make a decision. Am I gonna walk in the spirit, or am I gonna walk in the flesh? Am I gonna to die to myself, or am I gonna, and then live for the Lord? And so that confrontation is coming. And as we spend time in God's Word, there's always going to be conviction. There's always going to be some degree of our heart being cut and we realize, okay, I'm falling short and I'm allowing some things into my life that shouldn't be or Lord, help me grow in this area. But with the conviction comes a healing. With the conviction, with that cut to the heart, now the Lord can really be doing a work. A poison can be extracted. And this washing and this cleansing can take place. You know, Peter said, like newborn babies, desire the sincere milk of the Word. And I think it's a good prayer. As we're going through a study like this, and we're talking about how the Word of God is living and powerful, and how it's buried treasure, and how we should have this hunger and desire for it, maybe one of the things that comes to the surface is, you know, I don't really know. I don't know if I have a hunger for God's Word like I should. I don't know if I have a hunger for God's Word like I once did. That's a good prayer. Lord, give me a hunger for Your Word. I want to have spiritual life. That's a sign of spiritual life that we would be hungry for the Word of God. When we're at the dinner table and one of my kids says, you know, I'm just not hungry, and they push their plate to the side, you know what I think to myself? It's Probably my wife's cooking. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think that. (laughs) That was a joke. It's a joke. I don't think that. But I don't think to myself, you know, oh, that makes perfect sense. You know, you're just growing kids. You probably don't have appetites. No, that's not what I think either. I think to myself, what have you been eating? Uh, What junk food did you sneak? Oh, you got an extra bag of chips, did you? You know, that starts to make more sense. And so when we don't have a hunger for God's Word, the first question is, are we spiritually alive? Are we born again? Have we received Jesus into our life? Because if there's no hunger for God's Word, that's a question that we would ask. But if that's true, then perhaps we sometimes have to ask ourselves, well, what have we been eating? What have we been replacing God's Word with? And it's a good prayer. Lord, give me a hunger for Your Word because I want it to be a lamp into my feet and a light into my path and I want it to wash over me and cleanse me. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I'll start reading here at verse 1. I'm just going to read down to verse 3 and we'll get into our study. Nehemiah 8 verse 1 says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it from in the open square that is in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You know, almost every detail of this chapter lets us know that God is doing an extraordinary work. One of the challenges that we're going to have this morning is getting through this whole chapter without going into every little detail here. We find out that they have a Bible study that lasted for six hours, and unless we want to give them a run for their money, we're going to have to push through some of these things. Verse 1 says that all the people gathered together as one man. I find that pretty amazing. There's a real spirit of unity here among the people. They've had their issues, they've had their problems, they've had some fighting and division that's led up into this point, but now here, they're gathered together in unity. God is moving. God is at work. It says they gather in front of the water gate. So not only the way that they gather together in unity is impressive, but also where they're gathering, I think, is significant. The water gate, this would have been near the Gihon Spring, this main water source that fed into the pool of Siloam. This is the water source for Jerusalem. And I don't think there's any mistake or coincidence that this major immersion in God's Word, it takes place at the water gate. Not the Watergate hotel, the water gate that's near the temple. This is where this Bible study goes on. You know, throughout the scripture, you can see this imagery used. Oftentimes, when it's drinking water, that could be speaking of salvation. It's often speaking of the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus in John chapter 7? He said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. And so, drinking water is often a picture of the Holy Spirit being washed with water is often a picture of being washed with the water of the Word. We see that in Ephesians 5, verse 26, where it says that Jesus washes the church with the water of the Word. Of course, we're familiar with the context there. That's an example for husbands to follow in. But we're being told, Jesus, He sanctifies and cleanses the church with the washing of the water of the Word. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so this picture of being washed with the water of the word, that's what's happening here in Nehemiah 8. The people are gathering together the book of the law is brought out. The book of the law, that first five books of the Old Testament, that seems to be the emphasis in what they're studying through. And they're just being washed with the water of the word. And certainly for us, we know that Jesus washes us, his church, with the water of the word. And as we spend time in God's word, he's washing away the dirt, he's washing away the grime of this world. He's washing away the burdens that we carry that cause fear and anxiety and worry and concern. He's washing those away as we're putting our faith and trust in Him. You know, it's interesting that we're never told in the book of Nehemiah that the water gate had to be repaired. It's possible that it did, and it's just not mentioned in the book, uh, but we're never specifically told that. And perhaps one of the reasons why we're not told it is maybe it didn't need to be repaired. With all of the attack that had come as Babylon had come and leveled the city, perhaps this gate is still standing. And wouldn't that be significant? Here they are gathered together at this gate. The Word of God is just washing over them. Is this the one gate? It's still standing. It's still up. Maybe never was destroyed, even though there was all of this attack and all of this onslaught. And certainly we know that is true of the Word of God. It's always been under attack. That was Satan's strategy right from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, the very first question that he raises, has God indeed said that you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And he's been attacking the Word of God ever since. And even to this day. All throughout the world, there are places under heavy persecution, there are places where having a Bible means that you could be persecuted, it means that you could be arrested, it means that you could even be killed. And so with the Word of God under attack, and yet it stands in a place of authority. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, "...the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever." Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so His promises are true. And we can believe and we can have faith and we can trust in these things because they are eternal. They're going to endure forever. And so we certainly hope that we can come to the water gate. We can come to the place where God's Word is is just being poured out and it could wash over us and cleanse us. They tell Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Ezra the scribe, also the priest, he's a scribe. He is transcribing scrolls of Scripture. He's a priest of the Lord. We know that he was a godly man. We know that he led the initial return to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10 says, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. There's this threefold ministry there. Ezra, he prepared his heart. He determined in his heart to do three things to seek the law of the Lord, to study. He determined in his heart that he was going to obey those things himself. And he determined in his heart that he was going to teach these things to Israel. And if we are going to communicate God's word on any level, well, that is the process. That is the formula. If we're teaching in Sunday school, if we're teaching in youth ministry, if it's in our homes with our friends, our family, this is what we do. We commit, we determine, I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to know what it really has to say. I don't think we need to be an expert in the Scripture to be able to share our faith, to be able to share our testimony, to point people to Jesus. But if there's a desire on any level, I want to be able to communicate, well, here's what the Bible is saying that I need to study. I need to be diligent in those things. I need to read through and really understand it for myself. But before I teach anybody else, well, now I need to be obedient to those things. I need to really live it. Because if there's a contradiction there, if I'm not living the message that I'm preaching, then that's something that's going to get pointed out. And really, my life should be backing up the message where people would look at us and they would recognize there's something different. You know, why are you loving people like that? How could you forgive someone in that way? People should be recognizing the way that we're living our life, and then we share this life-changing life changing message with them and so he was committed to study he was committed to obedience and he's committed to teaching he's looking for those opportunities he's not just waiting for it to magically happen he's knocking on doors and looking for opportunities to teach and so he brings the law of the lord before this assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding verse 2 says Now there's something that's indirectly being implied there in verse 2. It says, this assembly is men and women and all who could hear with understanding. What seems to be implied there is perhaps very young children aren't part of this assembly. Uh, Babies probably weren't there, toddlers weren't there, young kids, and it would seem that that was a call that parents were going to have to make. Is my son, is my daughter old enough to really... Hear and understand. Keep in mind, this first Bible study, and it's going to go on for several days, but this first Bible study, it says it went from morning, that's dawn, that's just as the sun is rising, to midday. So you're talking a six-hour Bible study. I know every once in a while we think, oh, maybe you know, maybe I'll bring the kids in the sanctuary. I think they could handle you know, Pastor Gary or Pastor James. You know, you know that's a 45-minute deal, and sometimes it can, and sometimes it can't. But a six-hour Bible study, that's a little bit different. And so parents had to make that call. Is this something that they're really going to be able to hear? Is this something they're really going to be able to understand? And so somewhere, whether it was back in their homes or they gathered together, somewhere there's a group of little ones. There's a group of kids because they weren't going to be able to make it through the six-hour Bible study. They would have done probably what sometimes we're tempted to do here, maybe nod off a few times or or be just a little bit distracting. One of the things that you can see through this whole section is they were purposefully trying to eliminate distractions so that the message could be loud and clear and everybody could see and everybody could understand. And so it seems that some parents had to make that decision. Now, if they were smart, This lasted multiple days. It could be, hey, honey, you go today and I'll go tomorrow. You know, that's the benefit of having more than one service. You can serve in one service and then attend the other. Uh, But there were some people who had to make some sacrifices here uh, so the kids would have some place to be. And I'm certainly thankful. I'm certainly thankful for our children's ministry workers who make that sacrifice, who give that service. I think we have some of the best children's ministry workers on the planet. I'm so thankful for them. I'm thankful for Mark and Darla and the legacy that they've left. I'm thankful for Pat and Jen. I'm thankful for all of our teachers and helpers and volunteers, because not only are they providing us with this opportunity where we can sit here and as much as possible be in a distraction-free environment, little distractions here and there. I won't call anybody out specifically, Uh, but Every once in a while, there can be some distractions that go on, but for the most part, we get to be in this nice building and distraction-free, just listen to the Word of God, and those who are serving in our children's ministry and youth ministry, they're making that possible. And not only do we get to have this nice environment in here, they're hearing the truth of God's Word in a way that they can understand. And that might be shortening up the sermon a little bit, that might be simplifying the message, but they're hearing the truth of God's Word and with understanding, which is a really wonderful thing. Now, verse 2 also tells us that this happened on the first day of the seventh month, which just so happens to be Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. I'm sure that's all coincidence the way that that just worked together where the wall is complete and everything is built and they gather here together on the Feast of Trumpets. Of course, that's going to quickly lead to the Feast of Atonement uh, then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to see how Tabernacles specifically kind of plays into this section as we continue to go through it. But they're gathered together listening to the Word of God from morning until midday. Verse 4 says, So Ezra... The scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah, And on his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. I know what you're thinking. Wow, James, how did you learn all of those crazy names? I didn't. I don't know. this. I just say it you know, quickly and with confidence and move on. <laughs> Verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he had opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground." Says that Ezra stood on this platform. It was made for this very purpose. You know, you could almost get the idea from the beginning of chapter eight that it was a little random. Oh, hey, Ezra, get out here and bring the Bible. No, this was something they were planning. They built this platform uh, for this exact reason so everybody would be able to see. Everybody would be able to hear and understand and follow along with what is happening. And on his right hand and on his left hand, there's all these guys with strange names, but it lets us know that there's all of these people who are ministering with Ezra. And whatever their job was specifically, uh, whether they're just there for support, just there for encouragement, uh, whether they're sharing in some of the reading or the teaching, uh, whether they're helping Ezra with these scrolls that he's unrolling with the, the Word of the Lord, they have some job, they have some role, And what a blessing that is. This is the way that the church is supposed to be. This is the way that the Christian life is supposed to be. You look to your right hand and you look to your left and there's people who are shouldering the work with you. There are people who are encouraging you. There's people who are praying for you. There's people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and get involved. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian There's no such thing as a one-man show in ministry. It takes a team of people, and to his right hand and to his left hand, he had those who were faithfully ministering. And here we see the reaction of the people. As Ezra is reading from the book, it says all the people stood up. This goes on for six hours. I don't know, are they standing that entire time? just allowing the Word of God to wash over them. At some point, Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God. All of the people answer amen, lifting up their hands and bowing their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. All of these different postures that they take. And I don't know that any one posture is more spiritual than another, I don't know that it's more spiritual to stand or sit or kneel or have your hands raised or to be doing none of those things. I don't think it's really about the posture of our body as much as it's the posture of our heart. Is that what God is genuinely doing? Is it a response to Him in worship? God's revealing Himself to us and then we respond in praise. However, when the posture of our body is a reflection of our heart, then it can be wonderful. And we should have the freedom to be able to do that. Uh, Lord, You're moving, You're working, and so now I'm responding uh, to this work that You're doing in my life. Verse 7 says, Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherabiah, Jamin, Aqab, Shabbathai, Hodiah, Masiah, Keleta, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pellaiah, and the Levites. See, you really emphasize the one that you feel good about. The Levites. They help the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now again, we know this whole thing is going on for several days, and so whether they read through all of these first five books of the Bible and then went back and filled in the gaps or whether they're pausing along the way reading a certain amount of Scripture, we know at some point, the Levites, they're going out into the crowd and they're making sure everybody gets it. Hey, are you following along? Do you understand? Can we answer any questions? But of course, this should be the goal of every preacher, of every teacher, on any level, to read distinctly from the book, to give the sense, to help people understand the meaning. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what it means in its context. Here's how it applies to your life. To just simply teach the Bible so that people can understand and apply it. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, Eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our God. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them says all of the people wept not just the emotional types not just the people who cry when they see a Hallmark commercial you know everybody wept everybody is affected by this as they're just listening to the word of God for some of them it might have been the very first time that they really heard the message of the Bible in its totality having been in captivity. How much access did they have? How many scrolls of the Bible were even available to Ezra, let alone the common person? And so anything that they would have heard, probably most of that just would have been things that were passed down. Perhaps hearing about Adam and Eve and Noah and the flood and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for some, this could be the first time that they've been able to really just sit and listen to the Word of God and the whole experience is overwhelming. It says all of them wept. And I would imagine there's some mixed tears in there. Uh, For some, it could very well be a conviction of sin as they're listening to the Word of God. Whether they're thinking of that on a national level or on a personal level. Perhaps thinking of as a nation How did we get this far off track? We had every advantage. We had every blessing. We had this rich history and God provided everything that we needed. How did we get this far away from the Lord? Not that we could relate to that sentiment at all. Whether they were looking at that on a national level or whether it was personal. As they're spending time and they're listening to God's Word, are things being revealed in their own heart? In their own mind, is is God convicting them personally of sin? Because that's something that the Holy Spirit, that's something that the Word of God will do. It'll bring those things to the surface. Things that we might want to push down, things that we try to keep hidden, the Holy Spirit brings those things to the surface. Is there a conviction of sin that's in these tears? Considering where they're at as a nation. Considering where they're at individually is there some tears that are being shed just overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord? Some tears of joy, so to speak, as they just consider how faithful and how strong and how patient God is. Lord, you're so good. But this seems to be going on and on. This seems to be coming quite overwhelming. And then Ezra and the Levites, they have to tell the people, okay, you need to stop. Uh, This isn't a day to grieve. This isn't a day to shed all of these tears. This is actually a day to rejoice. You need to stop weeping. Now it's possible that some of this conviction was now slipping into condemnation. And it's important that we understand the difference between the two. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is from the devil or it could actually be from your own heart. And so conviction, the way that you're always going to be able to tell the difference, conviction is bringing you to the Lord. It's drawing you to His presence. It's bringing you to the cross. It's saying, hey, you need to deal with these things. This is something that needs to be removed. You need to be made right. But now you can be forgiven. And you can be washed clean by the blood of Jesus. He paid the penalty for all of your sin He's conquered it. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. And so you need to experience that forgiveness. Conviction is always drawing us to the Lord. Condemnation, on the other hand, we're being driven away from Him. Condemnation is saying, no, there is no forgiveness for you. There is no hope. You're never really going to change. Nothing's ever going to happen. So don't even try and we're condemned. A good illustration example of that Judas was condemned. Judas was guilty. He knew what he did was wrong, but it wasn't a conviction that brought him to repentance. It was condemnation where he ends up taking his own life. Peter was convicted. He was guilty. He was ashamed. He knew what he did was wrong in denying the Lord, but he goes to Jesus. He repents from the direction that he's going in. And so it's important that we make that distinction And that we don't get caught in that downward spiral of just being condemned, just recognizing all of our failures and faults and not coming to the cross, not coming to Jesus. But also, we keep in mind that this was happening on the Feast of Trumpets. This is one of those seven biblical feasts of the Lord, and this was a time to celebrate, this was a time to rejoice. And so Ezra and the Levites, they have to come along and they say, I know you're overwhelmed. This might not be what you feel like doing, but this is actually, according to the Bible, this is a day to rejoice. This is a day to celebrate. This is a day that's given over to the Lord. And then he says, for the joy of the Lord will be your strength, even though it's not what you feel like doing even though you might look at your present circumstances and though it's wonderful that they've been gathered back into the land and now the wall has been rebuilt, they're still a long way off from where they would have been. They're still a long way off from the time where David was reigning over Israel. And so Ezra says, look, it might not be the circumstances that you would wish for. It might not be what you feel like doing But if you're obedient and you do what God is telling you to do, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. God is the source of joy. There cannot be joy apart from Him because the source of of our joy is from God and it's in a relationship with Him that we get to experience that joy. And that goes beyond circumstances. That goes beyond, oh, everything's going good in my life, and therefore I have joy, or therefore I have happiness. No, the joy of the Lord is deeper than all of those things. And that's why they're able to say, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That word strength, it means refuge. It means strong tower. The joy of the Lord is this refuge that we can go to even when our life isn't working out the way that we want it to, even when it doesn't seem like we're headed in the right direction, even when I'm overwhelmed with some emotion, I can say, Lord, there is joy to be found in You. There's joy to be found in salvation. There's joy to be found in a relationship with God, and that can be a refuge. That can be a fortress, a strong tower that gives us the peace, gives us the strength that we need to endure. And so he says to all of the people, no, you need to rejoice. They, they go away, there's great gladness because they understand the Word of the Lord. Verse 13 says, Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring all the branches, branches of oil trees and myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, and from the first day until the last day, He read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now this is obedience to the Bible in its simplest form. In Leviticus 23, it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're just reading through it and they realize, hey, the 15th day of the seventh month, that's coming up. The Bible says this is a feast that we should honor and celebrate. Let's go ahead and do that and make those preparations. I don't know if they recognized all of the detail and everything that's represented in that feast, but the Feast of Tabernacles, this was a time to remember the wilderness experience, to remember when God had delivered them out of Egypt, and now they're out in the wilderness and they're camping out. But of course, as they're camping out in the wilderness... Not only are they intense, but in the center of the camp, you have the tabernacle of the Lord, where the presence of God dwelled. And so there was this realization that we're gathered around God's presence. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's providing everything that we need. The cloud by day, the fire by night, the water from the rock. the the food from heaven, God, you're providing our every need as we're camping out around your presence. And so the Feast of Tabernacles, it's looking back and it's remembering that time as they would build tents, as they would build booths, tents, tabernacles, and they would live out under the stars for this week. They're looking back and they're remembering that time, but they're also considering the present. They realize uh, we might not be camped out the way we once were. We might have better homes, but Lord, You're still the one who's with us. You're still the one that we want to center our lives around. You're still the one providing for us the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a time of harvest. So thank You, Lord, for Your provision. Thank You for all that You've done. Now, whether or not they recognize this or not, but the Feast of Tabernacles is also looking ahead to the future. We know from Zechariah 14 that the feast of tabernacles is going to be celebrated in the millennial kingdom. And so in the future, when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, the nations of the world are going to come and celebrate the feast of tabernacles. And so there's all of this imagery here. By the time you get to the days of Jesus, they're aware of all of these things. They're looking back to the past. They're considering the present. They're looking to the future. Would the Messiah come? Would He establish His kingdom? May there be a river that's flowing from Jerusalem. Lord, would You bring Your provision? We recognize that You've done that in the past, but it's going to continue on into the future. And so every day in the Feast of Tabernacles, a priest would come to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water and they would bring it up to the altar and they would pour it out there and there was singing and there was celebration that's going on because they're remembering all of these things. They're remembering their past, but they're also looking to the future. Would the Messiah come and establish His kingdom? And of course, that's the context. That's the setting for the verse that we quoted earlier in John 7.37 where Jesus stood up on the last day, the great day of the feast, and He cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Jesus takes all of this imagery, the provision in the Old Testament, the rock in the wilderness that gushed forth water, the future fulfillment and what's going to happen in the kingdom. Jesus takes the whole thing and applies it to Himself and the people Now in Nehemiah's day, here they are gathered together. It says that from the time of Joshua to that day, which was about a thousand years later, it had never been celebrated quite like this. And I think that's the idea there. Uh, We see the Feast of Tabernacles pop up a few times in the Bible between those periods of time. But this was the only time since the days of Joshua that everyone in Jerusalem who had come back The 40,000 plus people who had come back were all celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. There was something truly amazing, something truly extraordinary that was taking place. This time in the Word where it washed over them, where it made them all weep, it led them to this place of incredible renewal where God did something truly amazing. And I love the invitation that Jesus gives. He says, if anyone is thirsty, anyone, for God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in Him, the invitation is given to anyone, anyone who would recognize their spiritual thirst, anyone who would say, I need to be forgiven, anyone who would say, you know, I'm cracked and I'm dry and I'm weary, God, I need Your help, I need Your grace, Jesus says, anyone, who is thirsty, can come to me and drink freely. And we can be washed and we can be renewed and we can be forgiven. And it could very well be that in a fresh way, we need the Word of God to wash over us Maybe it's to bring us to a place of repentance. Maybe it's to put our faith and trust in Jesus for the very first time. Maybe it's to make sure, do I know the Lord? Am I going to be forgiven of my sin? Am I going to experience the judgment of hell? Or am I going to receive what Christ has done on my behalf? And the Word of God washes over us and we say, no, I don't want any of that. Jesus, I want You. Would You come into my life? Would You forgive me of my sin? Would you help me to follow you? Maybe we need the Word of God to wash over us, to just wash away the grime. Wash away the dirt. Wash away some of the things of this world. Wash away some of the burdens that we carry, that if we're not careful, they'll be too much for us. Jesus says, now come. Give those burdens to me. This is my word. These are the promises that have been given to you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Let those words wash over you this morning and experience the love and the joy and the forgiveness and, and the peace. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength, your refuge, your strong tower in times of need. Amen? We'll stop there for this morning. Let's come before the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for who you are. We thank You for Your presence here in this place. We thank You for Your Word, that it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We do pray that it would pierce deep into our hearts and to our minds. And Lord, I just pray that You would give us all the strength that we need to respond in the way that You would have us. Lord, if there's any here, if there's any listening to this message and they need to put their faith and trust in You, perhaps for the very first time, Lord, I do pray today would be the day That they respond. Today would be the day that they hear Your voice and by faith receive what You've done on their behalf. We thank You for the cross. We thank You, Jesus, for taking the punishment of our sin and rising from the dead. And so, Lord, I just pray that if anyone needs to receive You, that today would be the day for those of us who know You, Lord, and love You. We ask that Your Word would wash over us. That You would revive us according to Your Word. That You'd give us a hunger for Your Word. And that any filth, any dirt, any grime, the things of this world, any burden that we're carrying, Lord, that You'd wash that away as well. And that we would be able to go out from this place in gladness because we understood the Word of the Lord. We love You. We praise You. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.